Last Sunday, we started a new sermon series rooted in John chapter 11 and based on the book by Stephen W. Smith, The Lazarus Life, Spiritual Transformation for Ordinary People. Let me say that again, Spiritual Transformation for Ordinary People. So if you've ever thought to yourself, you know, I hear a lot about this life of the Christian, a life of Christ and joy in the Lord and abundant life, but I feel like I'm just always struggling just enough to get through life, then this series could be for you. If you've ever looked around at other Christians and thought to yourself, everyone seems to always be talking about this relationship with Jesus. Am I the only one who feels like they're on the outside looking in? Then this series is probably for you. If you've ever been so overcome with grief or anger or shame or pain that you can't imagine Jesus can do much for you, then this series is for you. And if you're just complicated, sometimes up, sometimes down, sometimes faithless, sometimes dutiful, a roller coaster of thoughts and feelings and duties, then this series, I think, is definitely for you. In fact, if you're a human being, then this series is for you. Because to be human is to, to, to be living in between the times of the resurrection on the one hand and the reappearance of Jesus and the new kingdom of God on the other. It's to be perpetually waiting perpetually not in full control, and perpetually longing for wholeness. It doesn't help that we live in a culture that espouses the values of power and control and self-sufficiency and success and victory and on and on it goes. Our music and film and television ads exalt the young and the healthy and the wealthy and the popular. And if you happen to see a TV ad with someone who's not young or healthy or feeling good and joyful, it's probably because that ad is there to sell you some product or pill or ideology that will help you to feel young and healthy and successful. Of course, reality is so very different. No one is always healthy. No one is perpetually young. Not everyone can win all the time. Sorry to burst your bubble there. In fact, later today, two teams out of 32 NFL teams are going to play each other for the championship. Only one of those two teams will win. One out of 32. That's reality. What does it do to our emotions and to our self-perception? What does it do to our soul to live in a world that promotes the good life as this perpetually winning ideal, when in reality, so few of us can be the best at everything, let alone even one thing. What happens when our cultural expectations of success bleeds into the way we perceive and practice faith in Jesus? See, part of the point for me uh, of doing this whole series uh, with the church is to help normalize our struggle. Far too many people hide in the shadows thinking that there is no place for their pain or for their sin or for their brokenness. And unfortunately, so many people think that there's no place for those things in the church. But the community of Jesus followers is precisely the place where we should be able to be the most real. After all, just look at the God who we're following. He was rejected by those he came to save. 
He was abandoned by his closest friends. He was abused by the justice system and sentenced to execution. I mean, he is, by the world standards, a failure. And we follow him and worship him. So we ought to be okay being real with our own failure. We ought to be okay being able to be honest with the way that we feel and the way we don't get it right. His first followers were full of character flaws, failures. Some had criminal records. Some had been part of horrible moral and ethical scandals. But the common denominator among those people who placed their faith in Jesus, especially the ones in the Bible when we read about them, is that they're honest with him. They confess their flaws. They desire to change their ways. They receive love and forgiveness rather than trying to prove they're worthy of love and forgiveness. Most of you would probably agree that humility and honesty with Jesus is foundational to trusting in him. And we see examples of this all throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts. So there's the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 who had been having this revolving door of marital relationships. And she's so moved by Jesus and his acceptance of her that she runs and tells the whole village about him. Come meet a man who told me all the things I've done. Or there's Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who stole from his own countrymen and then he repents and changes his way of living. Peter leaves his family business in a radical move of faith to follow Jesus. There's Paul, the great persecutor of the church and anti-Jesus teacher, and he's transformed by Jesus after a powerful encounter with the risen Lord. And we could look at these examples in Scripture, and many more, and sometimes wrongly conclude that following Jesus is a decision that takes place at one point in time, and from that point on, we ought to be progressively more Christ-like, that we ought to grow closer and closer to Jesus, that we ought to expect life will get better and better. We've mixed the values of our success-oriented culture with our view of what the Christian life should be like, and it's a recipe for disaster and for disappointment. Why? Because life, the life of faith, is not a steady line that gets progressively easier or progressively less complicated. You know, sometimes we read the stories of the people in the Bible and we forget that they're actual people with actual histories and habits and personalities and wounds. So let's go back to the Samaritan woman for a minute. She encounters Jesus and it changes her life trajectory from that point on. Yes, there is a, a marked change for her. But are we really to think that after years of bad relationships and shame and trauma, that that those things are just going to disappear and all of a sudden she's all better. You know, Jesus set her on a path of healing and he's with her in that process. But it is a process of undoubted ups and downs. She's going to have to work at repairing broken relationships and doubts about her worth. She's going to have to endure the comments and attitudes of people who know her past and they want her past to define her. After Paul's great conversion, miraculous, spectacular, but it's far from complete. Paul was, at that moment, on the Damascus Road, set on a trajectory of healing and maturing. But at first, he was so messed up that the church sent him away from Jerusalem for like 15 years so he could go work on his personal theological thinking and, 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 and work on his character. The normal Christian life, if there is one, is a life of messiness, 
a life of forward progress and backward slipping and heartache and pain. It is a life of waiting because in reality, you and I have very little control over the people around us. Heck, I can barely control how my own heart reacts to things, how my emotions are triggered at the little things from, from my past or my present or, or what I ate last night. You know, it's, it's so crazy how little control we have. And one of the hardest parts about following Jesus is going through hard times when it feels like Jesus is absent, when he doesn't just come to the rescue when I want him to when it seems like Jesus lingers while I suffer. You know, one of the significant and perplexing details in the story of Lazarus in John 11 is the fact that Jesus lingers rather than jumping to the rescue of his good friend who's dying. It's the lingering Jesus to which we now turn our attention. And I'm just going to read the first six verses of John 11. So here we go. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now, in this story, we learn that Lazarus is very sick and that Jesus loved him and loved the sisters. It's an important detail. And we're going to have to remember that everything that happens from here on out is motivated by love and for the glory of God. We need to remember this love motivation because what happens next is not what we might expect. I'll read it again. When he heard the news that he was sick, then he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What is going on? Up until this point in John's gospel, remember this is chapter 11, so we've got 10 chapters going on before this. I mean, we've seen Jesus do amazing things. He's healed people with impossible to cure conditions. He's even healed a nobleman's son from a distance, uh, you know, just by saying a prayer, just by saying it, it can be done. Why does he now linger when his good friend is sick and dying? Let, let me flesh this out a little bit more to show you just how astounding this situation was. See, from the other Gospels, we may imply that Lazarus and his sisters were not married. At least the sisters weren't married. We know that. In the first century Jewish culture, that meant that Lazarus, as the brother, as the male of the family, was their primary provider for them. So the family may have money combined by the three of them, but that money, if Lazarus were to die, would go to the next living male. It might be a distant cousin who wouldn't even have the same interest in caring for Mary and Martha like their brother did. So not only were they losing a brother if Jesus lets him die, they're losing much of their way of life, their livelihood, their security. Also from the ge geography, we can apply that Jesus was about a day's journey from where Lazarus was. So even if he left immediately, he could have been there at Lazarus's side um, by the end of the next day, which meant that Lazarus would have already been dead. Um, but at least he could have been there for his funeral. 
But by waiting two days, Lazarus was already dead four days and already put in the tomb by the time he got there, leaving Mary and Martha not only to mourn at his funeral without him, but to, to, to be sitting there wondering what was going to happen next in their grief and in their pain. And that's heavy stuff, right? Put yourself in the spot of Mary and Martha for a moment. What would you be thinking? How would you be feeling? Abandoned? Angry? Scared of the future? Probably a little bit of all of that. Both of them declare at different times in the story, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Why did Jesus linger? Why didn't he just say the word and heal his good friend from a distance? Why didn't he teleport to be at the side of Lazarus and to take away his sickness? Why at least didn't Jesus rush to Bethany in order to mourn with Mary and Martha and their community? If God is good, if God is able, we sometimes postulate, then nothing bad should happen, right? And if something bad happens, then either God is not good, or God is not able, or God must be punishing me, or punishing someone, or so goes the thinking. When we suffer, when things don't go our way, when Jesus seems to linger, we're disappointed. And we have to cope with that somehow. And typically, human beings cope with the lingering Jesus in three very generalized ways. I am overgeneralizing. The first is that we simply don't believe in God anymore. Or we don't want anything to do with him. Why? Because he's either not there for us, or he's not good, or he's not able, or he's vindictive. Either way, he's not worthy of worship. So goes the thinking of a lot of people. But what do Christians do? How do people who claim faith in God, who claim to worship him, how do we struggle with the lingering Jesus? How do we handle that? One way is through compartmentalizing. We break our lives up into different segments as a way of sort of protecting ourselves from the disappointment or protecting ourselves from facing tough questions of a Jesus who lingers while we suffer. So we might recognize Jesus as Lord when we're at church or in a Bible study. We'll sing his praises. We'll read the Bible. We do the actions of worship. And in this compartment, we can give praise to Jesus as the giver of the good things we experience in life. And he isn't in danger of getting a bad reputation for being a lingering God where bad things happen out in the world. If we just keep him in church or in our prayer life, our private life, then, then he's not really um, exposed to the dirt of what goes on out in the world. Now, when it comes to the rest of life, you know, like how we spend our money or how we do in our relationships, how we do our work, it's easy to leave Jesus out because we don't want to answer any of those tough questions about our problems at work or our marriage or in our singleness or in our bodies when they fail us. Oh, you know, sure, we'll pray some trite prayers for guidance, but then we're just going to do what our reason and our gut tells us anyway, right? One of the big problems with this way of living, of course, is that we, and we all do it to some degree, is that we put impossible expectations onto other people or onto ourselves to fill the void that only God was made to fill. But when we keep him out of all those areas of our life, someone's got to fill that role. So we expect our spouse or our partner to fulfill all of our needs. We expect our boss to be casual and kind, but competent and successful. 
We want our employees to be uh, compliant, but creative, hardworking, and you can never miss a day. It's almost as if they don't have real human bodies, right? And they never get sick. We think our church should be more perfect, or the government should be more perfect, and our parents should be more perfect. And you get the picture. And we're set up for disappointment after disappointment when we exclude God from parts of our lives. This is functional atheism. Jesus gets his praise at church, but if I don't acknowledge him in the world, then I don't have to worry about him letting me down. And that's how I can worship on the one hand and still face the messiness of life on the other. Now, it's bad theology that leads to such views. It's really a false choice to say that Jesus doesn't care or is punishing us or simply can't help us. We're not truly worshiping Jesus if all we do is praise him and pretend that there's nothing wrong in our lives or in the world. If we don't get real about our pain and invite him into our suffering, that's not really God that we're interacting with. But there is a third way, a way that followers of Jesus throughout the years have sought to understand the lingering Jesus. And this third way takes seriously our limited perspective. The fact that we don't have all the facts. It takes into consideration that what is best is not always what is evident or what is desired. And this third way takes seriously that we're often deluded about our own wounds and what it really takes to heal. So C.S. Lewis tells this story of having a toothache, but he's hiding it from his mom when he's a kid. He learned to eat on one side of his mouth to get by with the discomfort. All he wanted was just to have the pain gone. But he refused to go to the dentist because he knew that once he opened his mouth, the dentist would want to work on all the rest of his bad teeth too. See, we are masters at avoiding pain and discomfort and we delude ourselves into thinking that our lives are pretty good that we are fairly in control of most things, that we're almost self-sufficient, that we just need a little bit of help from Jesus here and there to kind of keep things fine-tuned. But Jesus sees beneath the surface, and sometimes he lingers when we're in a problem so that we come to our senses. Sometimes he lingers because, as Stephen Smith writes, waiting helps us define what we want and what we need. We realize our transformation is not up to us. It never was. Now, I shared last week about hitting a glass ceiling in my life. Things on the outside were looking good, but I just couldn't grow anymore in intimacy. And I thought at the time that what I needed was a quick fix, maybe maybe a good book to set me straight, you know, like dive into my head a little bit more, that's what I would need. Or maybe a weekend conference with some uh, encouraging speaker that would just inspire me. But none of my go-to fixes were working. And in the waiting and in the wrestling, I came to see that the extent of my soul sickness was much deeper than I had first imagined. It was in the waiting when I wasn't receiving the, the familiar kind of consolation of Jesus through my usual spiritual practices. It, it was in that waiting and suffering, really, that I became open to a much deeper need for healing, a journey that uh, I continue to walk today. See, a lot of times we think we want quick answers, but in reality, we need deeper transformation. 
And in the story of Lazarus, the issue is not whether Jesus loved his friends. I mean, we know he loved Lazarus. We know that he wept with the sisters in their shared grief. And it wasn't that Jesus couldn't heal. I mean, in the preceding chapter in in John's gospel, they're full of Jesus healing and turning water to to wine and feeding 5,000. Jesus was totally able. But in the story, Jesus is able and he's loving and he lingers mysteriously for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. His love and ability are not set in opposition to his lingering. Where are you waiting in grief or soul sickness or discomfort? In his book, Smith lists at least three things. He, he talks of the familiar waiting in the hospital waiting room, right? Out of your control, someone you love is, is in the hospital. Or entering into a house after a divorce and you might just think that it's a broken relationship. The emptiness and the pain that that feels like. Or lingering in another day waiting for work. If you're, you're out of work, you're wondering where the money's going to come from, about what your purpose in life is, about what you're doing. And you're just waiting for it. It's another day and you haven't found anything. You're scouring the ads. But what other scenarios might we think of? Maybe it's longing to hear from an estranged relative. Maybe it's waiting for the dang pandemic to clear up. I mean, that's probably on all of our lists to some degree. Maybe it's waiting for medical tests and you know something's up, but you just, you have, you're feeling out of control. You have no idea what those tests are going to say. Maybe it's waiting on a wayward child or a wayward partner to come around to turn around, to come home, to see themselves as loved. What might, be Jesus, what might Jesus be doing underneath the surface of it all? You know, in the, in the barren winter landscape outside, it doesn't, it doesn't look like anything's going on. It just looks flat and hard and, and brown. But that doesn't mean that there's not life. And what we can't see even now are the daffodil bulbs beginning to awaken. The cherry buds are preparing to blossom. And just as there are things that simply can't happen unless a plant goes dormant for a time, so there are things happening beneath the surface in our waiting, in our crying out to the Lord, that for whatever mysterious reason seems to to be essential in our growth and our transformation. So I I leave you with this, something I'm learning more and more each year of following Jesus. I've said it a hundred times, I'm pretty sure the quote comes from Dale Bruner, but it's this, don't put your faith in your faith. Don't trust your feelings of intimacy and don't believe that just because you don't feel Jesus near you or you don't experience him personally, don't think that he's not there. Because the good news is good news. It's a declaration of a fact, not something reserved for those who feel certain feelings or happen to believe certain facts. Jesus is on the move, whether we see him or not. And I believe he's on the move, especially in our waiting.